Amen. As we continue today in the study of Romans, we're confronted by the reality that this is hard. Last time I was in the U.S., I heard a teenage girl saying to her mother, talking about schoolwork and homework and and all the things that she had to do and places she had to go and pressures of friends, and she just said, Mom, it's like hard. And it just stuck with me. What an expression. It's hard. It's difficult. Being a disciple is difficult. There are a lot of ways that we express that in our native languages and our native cultures. For example, I've heard the phrase, it's a difficult pill to swallow. It's a tough bread to chew. What are some expressions from where you're from that convey that this is going to be difficult, this is going to be hard? Anybody? A hard nut to crack. I like it. Anyone else? I know you have them because I can see them on your faces and you're whispering to your partner. Should I say it? You should. What's your expression? Maybe this is just too hard. (laughs) It is hard to follow Christ. And now Paul gets to the heart of that challenge as we prepare to look at Romans chapter 12. Would you first join me in a word of prayer? God, you said to us to come if we're weary or heavy burdened and you will give us rest. And we find such rest and peace in your arms, O Lord. And yet you also said to come Take up our cross and follow you. And that is hard. So we pray, Lord, that you would convict us and challenge us anew as we consider this hard and difficult life of a disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been having a wonderful time in this survival kit Bible study. And if you've not come to one or don't have the book, it's okay. We always have people that show up each week who've not participated yet, and they're curious. But one of the things that I love about Bible study, and this is one in particular, is the interesting questions people ask. There are no wrong questions, because the only wrong thing to do is to not ask, and then be ignorant. And so I love the questions that I get, but I also come with questions. And this has been true of churches all over where I have served. My highlight of the week is, what will the questions be in Bible study? What will people try to ask? And sometimes people are trying to to stump me, you know, stump the chump, uh, to, to ask something they know might be a difficult question. And sometimes the questions are very sincere from the person's heart struggle, and sometimes just Sometimes they are completely random, like the time the little old lady asked me, how does the internet work? (laughs) And one of those random questions that I want to share with you, it, it, it might just change your life. And the question was put to me, why, Pastor Mason, why, why are fire trucks always red? 
You go all over the world and they're red. In the United States, they're solid red. Here, they're red with sometimes some white stripes. In the UK, they usually have a, a streak of fluorescent yellow down the side, but always red. And it sounds like a serious question. It's not. <laughs> it could be because of fire. Maybe because they're always going to a fire. Red is the color of fire. It could be. It could be because it wants it to stand out and be noticeable so you'll get out of the way. However, if you painted it hot pink, that would also be very visible. But you don't see hot pink or neon purple fire trucks. They're, they're always red or some combination with mainly red. So I have an answer for you. Don't take it too seriously, but pay attention because this answer is going to confuse you and turn you around and test the proficiency of English that you have in your life. So you may not be a native English speaker. This is going to stretch your ability to listen because it's going to use a lot of play on words and, and misdirection and misinformation and the absolute mystification of the English language. So here it goes. As an American, this is my answer. In the United States, most fire trucks have eight wheels. Eight. And there are typically five, four firefighters that are riding on that truck. Four. Now, four plus eight is what? Twelve. On a good day, it's twelve. And in the U.S., we don't do the metric system. We're not... We're not advanced enough for that. We'd measure everything by feet, and we measure everything by inches. And there are 12 inches in a foot. And a foot is the standard size of measurement, so it is the standard size for all rulers, those little plastic things you used to use in school to measure. 12 inches in a foot. A foot is a ruler. And the one British ruler that every American knows is Queen Elizabeth. And the Queen Elizabeth was one of the largest ships to ever sail the seas. And here's where it gets interesting. Because seas have fish and fish have fins. And the Russians once fought the fins. And the Russians' color is red. And since fire trucks are always Russian... Fire trucks are always red, right? Confusion? Concern? <laughs> that is the worst excuse of an explanation or reason for why fire trucks would be red. It sounds like nonsense, and it is. It sounds like double talk because it was. It sounds like it's intentionally confuse, confusing. To confuse you, and it was. It is a poor excuse of a reason. But here's where it might change your life. Because I learned something when I, I didn't come up with that on my own. But when I read it, I learned something. I, I had this thought. I wonder if this is not how I sound to God when I am giving him reasons when I'm giving him explanations for why I cannot. I can't go there because, you see God, I don't have the time. I, I can't do that, you see God, because I don't have the training. I can't lead that ministry or be on that team because 
I've never done that before, or I can't go and make it there early to help that team set up because I've got a lot going on in my life. I can't give that. I don't have enough resources, and I certainly can't witness to that person because what if I say the wrong thing or if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to and I start to sound like four plus eight is 12, 12 inches in a foot, a foot is a ruler. You see, these aren't really reasons, they're excuses, aren't they? Do we all understand as believers the difference between a reason we cannot, maybe our health, or or, or maybe we're not there? Maybe those are legitimate reasons versus excuses. And God, he has heard thousands upon thousands of years of excuses from people whom he has called. Even Moses and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and all the prophets often had some excuse. And God just would not hear it. And so when we come to this part of Romans in chapter 12, God is not interested in our reasons. And he makes it very clear, Paul does, that now that we have understood all of these mysteries of justification and sanctification, now he begins to dig into the expectations and the responsibilities of a disciple. If you've been following us uh, in this sermon series, you know that justification is actually quite easy for the believer. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our accomplishments accomplishments, and it's not based on our merit. It is a free gift, grace is. And that salvation or justification comes as a free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is the grace that God does to us. But then we learned that the story continues with sanctification. Becoming saintly is a life time process. It's the grace that God does with us. And it takes every day, every ounce of energy with every bit of effort we can muster. And so part of this sanctification we learn today is not just about being a good prayer, faithful pray person. It's not just about reading your Bible alone in your room, that it will require everything of us. In verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God. He's basing his appeal on everything we have learned about grace and the mercy of God and the cost of justification, the precious price of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And if you think that the suffering of Jesus was only on the cross, you have missed the humility, indeed the humiliation of God becoming flesh. His whole life was a sacrifice. Every day was a suffering sacrifice here on this earth. And so he appeals to us on that ground, the mercy of God. To do what? To to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is writing in a time where the Jewish people were still steeped in the tradition of, of, of animal sacrifice for human sin. That when the people did wrong, there would be a consequence, which is death, we have learned. A blood sacrifice is required. And so they would take the spotless, pure lamb, and they would place it upon the altar, and they would sacrifice his blood. It was the scapegoat, if you will, that literally the sins of the people transferred to this animal and they had to do this day after day, year after year. And then Christ comes to show that all other sacrifices are no longer required. But not only that, they cannot compare. He is the once and forever sacrifice. Paul has taught us this in Romans already. But now he, he does something well, it's hard. It's difficult. He says, now it is you who must be the sacrifice. Not a, a death sacrifice, as he paid upon the cross, but a living sacrifice. So that every moment of every day of our lives, we are living not for ourselves. For in baptism, we said we died to ourself. And now we are raised in new life to live for Christ. To live every moment of every day for him requires a great and painful sacrifice. And he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's such a contrast that, that to be conformed to this world is still a possibility for me and for you as believers. It usually happens slowly. We begin to listen to the world a bit more than to the Bible. We begin to spend more time with other circles than within our Christian friendship circles. We begin to spend more time doing what we want than what, than what the Lord wants. We spend more time out of church than in church, more time out of his word than in it, more time out of prayer than in prayer. And slowly we begin to conform or perhaps reconform, as it were. And this happens not because we hate God and disregard his salvation, but because we've become entitled to it. We take it for granted. Have you ever heard that phrase before, take for granted? Think about what we're saying when we say that. Granted, as in just given, with no expectation, no requirements, and taken means not that it's given, but we're taking it for ourselves. And sometimes you hear uh, very twisted false teachers say, you can claim it, you can decree it to the Lord. That's taking it for granted, not receiving the gift. 
And so that leads to this feeling of entitlement, which eventually leads to apathy. We become comfortable. We become relaxed. And if we can say that our Christian life is not difficult, we are not doing it correctly. If we can say, oh, this is easy, then we should stop and say, what am I missing? What am I doing that I shouldn't be doing that makes it so easy? So he says, don't be like that. Don't be conformed to that worldly mindset. Rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This Greek word is, uh, is the word... Uh, metamorpho, metamorphosis. You probably have heard that word before. It's what happens when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon, wraps itself up in silk, and inside that cocoon, things change. The ugly, slimy, creepy, crawly caterpillar becomes the beautiful, multicolored, winged butterfly. And he's saying, this is, this is the most beautiful thing. It may be hard and it may be painful and it may not happen as quickly as we would like, but when we go through this process on the other side, it is beautiful. You are beautiful in the eyes of God. So he goes on to say that, that this transforming comes from the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is God's will? We were discussing this on Wednesday night this last week because it's one of those questions we often ask. I want to know what is God's will for my life? What is it I am meant to be doing for God and I once heard a sermon where the pastor brilliantly explained, we already know the will of God. It's presented for us here, page after page of God's will. If I am not bothering to understand this that I can know, why would God reveal to me that which I do not know? If we all want to do God's will, I can read it for myself. He tells us, Serve the needy, love the lost, share the gospel, protect the vulnerable, bring hope to the hopeless, feed the hungry. Do not worship yourself, worship the Lord only. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. This is the perfect will of God. And we begin to do these things more and more. We see God gives us more and more to do. I think about how my relationship in obeying my earthly father has changed over the years. It helps me understand my relationship with my heavenly father. When I was a little boy, my dad, he was quite strict, quite gruff. He worked hard. He was a hard-working man. And if he told you to do something, you knew if you did not do it, there would be consequences. As my mother used to say, if you don't clean up your room, your dad will jerk a knot in you. I'm not sure what that means, but it does not sound pleasant. 
And so as a child, I often obeyed out of fear. Sometimes we obey God out of fear. But as my relationship with my father grew and I became older, I learned to obey what he told me to do out of respect. Out of deep respect for this man as a person, as a hardworking person. And, and in that relationship began to have some kind of change to it. And now today, if my dad asked me to do anything, I will do it out of love out of love and appreciation for all the sacrifices that he made for me over the years, all of the hours of long work that he did to put me through university and and make sure we were fed and sheltered. And so now that love even turns to thanksgiving and gratitude. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he's teaching us to respond to the will of God in love and gratitude. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. No one is too good to get their hands dirty in the work of the kingdom. In verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ. And individually we are all members of one another. This is what we've been learning in our survival kit study, that, that the body of Christ is the church. That's each one of us who are here today are the body. And just like a human body has different body parts, so this body of Christ has different body parts. Some of you are the eyes. You can see what others cannot. You may be the ears. You have a way to hear God's voice in your life and discern rightly and with wisdom. Some of you are the mouth. You can say it like no one else can and and maybe pray it when no one else would. Some of you are the hands, the the muscle, lifting things, preparing things. Some of you are the feet, going out into the world, bringing forth the gospel. But take one body part away, and the body is incomplete. Paul says the whole body suffers. So if you're the hand, and you refuse to do the work of the hand, how will anything be done? If you are the feet and you refuse to do the work of the feet, how will the gospel ever go forth? If you are the backbone that holds us together and refuse to do the work of the backbone, the whole body collapses with no structure. Every one of you matter. Everyone And he says in verse 6, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassion in cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, 
Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. This is hard. And we may feel like we are inadequate to the task. We may feel like we do not have what it takes to do any of these jobs. And these are only a few that Paul names here. There are many others. There are many parts to the body. And we may look at our hands and say, what have I to give to the Lord? What have I to give to the kingdom? What have I give to give to be a living sacrifice to the Lord? I was pastoring a church in North Carolina. We had one Wednesday night a missionary come to visit our church. I don't remember where he was serving, but it was somewhere steeped in poverty and, and affliction and oppression. And he was working with children in an after-school program, and he was sharing from his heart all about these precious little children and how little they have. And he said, we're trying to collect the resources to give every child some kind of stuffed animal for Christmas. And I saw the most precious thing that night. You see, in our church, we were also working with very poor children in the community. It was one family, 17 children in the home, no father. The mother was addicted to so many things. And these children were coming and, and they were receiving love and, and help and support. And they were there that Wednesday night. And the littlest girl in the group was holding a small stuffed bunny rabbit. And I knew she didn't buy it. She had been given this by the local help mission. It was a free Christmas gift to her. We knew this. But as he was talking, this little girl waddled her way up with her rabbit and handed it to the missionary. It's the only precious thing she had. I leave you with this question. Why is it that it seems so often that those who have the least give the most? Why is it that those with the least talent, the least ability, the least resources are always the first to raise their hand? And like the bold prophet Isaiah say, here am I, send me. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, indeed, we have nothing. For everything we have belongs to you. And we pray for the faithfulness to allow you to use us 
as willing vessels, living sacrifices, that we might fulfill our purpose, your will for our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.